Benjamin Franklin apparently said, Contentment makes poor, me, poor men rich, but discontentment makes rich men poor. Contentment makes poor men rich, but discontentment makes rich men poor. Last week we spoke about having wisdom with money, and this week we're speaking about having peace with what we got, or the, the art or the discipline of contentment. And I want to quote for you from, from John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, again, what he said about money, and it's worth thinking of. I meant to print it for you this week, but I, I didn't get routed. John Wesley said about money, It is an excellent gift of God, answering the noblest ends. In the hands of his children, it is food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, raiment, meaning clothing, for the naked. It gives to the traveller and the stranger where to lay his head. By it we may supply the place of an husband to the widow and of a father to the fatherless. We may be a defence for the oppressed, a means of health to the sick, of ease to them that are in pain. It may be as eyes to the blind, as feet to the lame, yea, a lifter up from the gates of death. And it's awesome to think what money can do in the right hands. So many hospitals and schools and places of shelter for people in danger have been built with the church's money. It's amazing to look back into the past and see how faithful Christians took their money and gave it to build some of the best hospitals in the world where some of the most advanced research is made into how to bring healing to people. It's not all about miracles, although to me that is a miracle when people are changed from being selfish to being generous. It's perhaps a greater miracle in my mind than God simply healing someone. It's the changing of a heart. But by teaching us to be generous, God has used us to render miracle in the world in which we live. Sunday after Sunday, we bring our tithes and our offerings into the church. We collect it, and I'm careful to pray or to say that money is not all that we are offering. The money that we place in the bags is, is really just a symbol of everything that we are and everything that we do. And I always encourage you to give something invisible if you've got one of those invisible coins that you want to put in, the one that says being a housekeeper or being a cleaner or being a friend, those invisible coins that you put in there. And I think God sees them more clearly than we do. It's a symbol of the fact that everything that we have belongs to God. But when we say that everything that we have belongs to God, we have to say Well, if it's God's, I must use it as if it was God's. So whether you have a lot, or maybe it's even more if you have a lot, whether you have a little, it's important to realize whose you are and whose stuff you are in charge of. We're using the parable of the prodigal son as a guide for our reflection. And we all know that we gain wisdom from experience, And sometimes it's best when we gain wisdom from somebody else's experience. So today we look at the prodigal son's story that Jesus tells and we take comfort in the fact that even in Jesus' time, there were people who were foolish with money, just like us, 
and he learned a lesson. Last week, in last week's episode, the prodigal was longing to eat the food of the pigs. You all remember the story, so I won't tell you the rest, and I'll continue from verse 19. I'm reading from the message translation. He was so hungry he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give, give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, All those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home with his father, to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him, his heart pounding. He ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. We'll learn what happened next, next week. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word to us. The son's desire to have it all and have it right now lands him in trouble, eating with the pigs. But in trouble, he comes to his senses. He humbles himself. says, you know, I could actually do with simply being a servant in my father's house. It's not necessary that I have all this status and wealth. Let me at least have enough to eat. And so we're going to speak about that coming to our senses phase that the prodigal goes through. And perhaps the first step in that is to ask ourselves what is most important in our lives. I remember in Sunday school they used to say, okay, if, the, if your house was building down, what would you take as you escape the flames? And the correct answer in Sunday school was, my Bible. <laughs> but uh, I don't think that's the correct answer. There's, there's so many other things that, that are irreplaceable in each of our homes. What do you take? Photographs? Teddy bears? Toys? If you had a few minutes to pack up and evacuate, what's the one thing that you'd grab from your house? birth certificate. Proof that I'm alive. <laughs> Put passport. <laughs> That's important stuff. All these things. But so many times we've watched these disasters unfold on TV as people lose absolutely everything in their world. Their houses are completely destroyed. They have just nothing but the clothes on their back. And they're lucky to have their lives. Jesus, I think, says to us and to those people, one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. For so many of us, those things, even our passports, our ID books, are so important to us, but actually any of those things doesn't matter because our lives are not defined by the things that we have or the things that we own. Rather, they're defined by our relationship with God. As I think about having many positions, I think of the privilege I've had as a minister of holding somebody's hand who's dying in a ten-bedroom mansion that I didn't have the chance to explore and praying with them. And sometimes, actually once it was in the same week, I held the hand of someone dying in a squatter camp with sewage passing by their door. 
you realize then that our possessions are really just temporary things. And in the end, all is equalized. But we live in a world that I spoke about last week seems designed to get us into debt. We also live in a world that seems designed to make us think that if we only had such and such, or could do such and such, or buy such and such, then everything would be okay, and we would be truly happy. Have you ever seen a family that looks like the families in the adverts? You know, they're always all healthy and all handsome, and everything's perfect because they bought the latest car or drank the latest drink or whatever it is they had to do. And we start to believe in that illusion placed before us. We start to believe that if only we were them, we would be happy. We're looking to satisfy some sort of inner restlessness. But funnily enough, this kind of restlessness, this desire, happens at every level of society. Even people with private jets wish they had bigger ones. They think, if only I had that private jet. So you guys, give me all your private jets, okay. But I remember hearing a sermon when I was young where the preacher said, everybody has a God-shaped hole in their hearts. And he was speaking to us teenagers, so he said, some of you might think you've got a motorbike-shaped hole in your hearts and you want to fill it with a motorbike. Some of you have got a guitar-shaped hole and you want to fill it with the greatest guitar. But all of us are built with this ingrained desire for God. And we think it's stuff and status that we need to make us happy, but it's not. The only thing that fills us truly is God. And we have restless hearts. That's, that's what God designed us with. We have restless hearts because, as Jesus says in the Beatitudes, we are meant to hunger and thirst for righteousness and the kingdom of God. We are meant to work for justice and peace and look at the world and think it's not the way it should be. I want to see it better. But the project is so overwhelming and big that instead of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we hunger and thirst for spare, spare ribs. I get commission for mentioning that. So. <laughs> but we get overwhelmed with all the stuff that we think we should have, that we forget what we really need. James McIntosh, someone I came across in my reading for this week's sermon, says, It is right to be contented with what we have, but never to be contented with what we are. That's the hunger and thirst that needs to drive us. The hunger and thirst that longs to be perfected in Christ, that longs to be transformed and to become more Christ-like and see a world that's more kingdom of God-like. And yet, our discontentment is always with what we have. Our focus needs to shift. I'm just leaving out the hellfire and brimstone. Let me take you to the letter to the Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, the writer to the Hebrews says, and you should pay attention, it's on your printed slips, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. 
For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Be content with what you have, the writer to the Hebrews says. For he, meaning Jesus, has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I like what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Philippians. I have learnt to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances I have learned the secret of being well fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. How can we learn to be content? As the writer to the Hebrew says, with our physical stuff and, and discontent with the spiritual stuff. I like that for Paul, he doesn't say, suddenly, when I came to Jesus, I was miraculously content with everything that I had. He says, I've learned to be content. It's a discipline that we need to exercise in our minds. And if you think about how we allot our time, you can tell what we are discontent with. We'll come to church if it looks like a nice day and if it's at the right time and if the preacher is going to be interesting enough. But we'll spend 50 hours a week at work, slaving away. We'll take notes when our very boring boss speaks for hours and hours, but if the preacher goes over time, we switch off and start rolling our eyes. What is our priority? Are we about money? Or are we about a God who changes our lives? In Adam Hamilton's book, Enough, I've picked up some tips on how to learn to be content. And I like his first tip, and I remember a book that I, my mum used to read to me when I was a kid. It was called, It Could Be Worse. It Could Be Worse. And this guy went through all these terrible things, and every time at the end of the terrible thing, he said, It Could Be Worse. And next, something worse happened. It might seem a little cynical, but it is actually quite a helpful thing to to get your mind around because we are trained to always look up at the next person. So you'll be driving a 1300 and a 1600 will pass you, I speak in car language, and you'll think, oh, I wish I had that 1600. But you know, there's somebody in an 1100, in what was those minis? There were 600 cc's. And the people with motorbikes with bigger engines than that, they think they want the 1300, etc., etc. You see someone in a four-bedroom house, and you live in a three-bedroom house, and you think, I wish I had a four-bedroom house. If you have to clean it yourself, you wish you had a two-bedroom house. (laughs) But you always think it could be worse. So your walls need painting. Well, at least your roof's not leaking. So you have to sleep with all these people who snore all night. Well, at least they don't. Anyways, you can always find something good to focus on rather than the most negative things. First tip, it could be worse. Stop looking up all the time and start looking down. And something that happens there is you start to be a little less self-centered. You don't sit going, I've I've got a bigger house, I've got a bigger house. You start to say, I've got a bigger house, can I help this person? Rather than, you've got a bigger house, can you help me? How long will this make me happy is, the, is, a, is, a, is another good tip. 
how long will this make you happy to ask yourself of these things? Because so often someone sells us something so quickly, like a car or a gadget, or I have a vegetable juicer in the garage. All these things that we thought would make us skinnier or better or healthier, and perhaps richer too. How long will this make me happy? Is a question we should have asked before we bought out the cash. My friends, uh, I love gadgets, you know, and I always want a better cell phone. But a friend of mine got a cell phone that I was jealous of, and I said, you know what, I can do a lot more with 100 bucks a month than you can, can with your cell phone. But <laughs> Another good thing to do is, before you buy something, test it out. If uh, you perhaps desire a car for a long time, you think, I really want this. When you go to Toyota, don't let them just, wherever you go, don't let them just uh, give you a quick test drive in the car and sell it to you. Say to them, I want to drive it for a day. A car is a huge amount of money that you're going to spend. Discern carefully what it is you're going to buy. I spent ages and ages dreaming about having a Land Rover and then someone let me drive theirs for a day and I had a sore back and a stiff leg afterwards and I said, I don't want this thing anymore. It was a great burden lifted off my shoulders. The other tip to thinking, how long will this make me happy, is I've got friends who say yes and I've got friends who say no. And if I want something, I'll phone the friends who say yes and say, do you think I should get this? If I don't really want something, I'll find the friends who say, no. (laughs) And say, do you think, we do that to ourselves. How long will this make me happy? Let's be honest about it. The third tip is to develop an attitude of gratitude. He put it differently, but that rhyme is put in my head. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, Paul tells us to give thanks in all circumstances. And I don't know about you, but I think we all love to moan. It's nice just to sit and blow some steam and talk about how terrible stuff is and how awful these people are and such and such and such and such. When your family and your children are getting on your nerves because they haven't worked out how to use the lid on the wash box or whatever it is that they haven't done or figured that toy boxes are where toys should live or that toilet seats need to stay down, take some time to tell God all the stuff that irritates you about them. But then follow the example of the psalmist who starts by moaning, even the Psalm 13 that we read this morning. The psalmist is saying, Lord, how long have you turned your back on me? At the end, he starts giving thanks. Allow yourself to go from the moaning and complaining to the giving thanks. And don't stop at the, and don't just stop at the moaning and complaining. Give thanks in all circumstances. You'll be amazed if one day you're feeling down and you take a walk and you just practice giving thanks. You say, Lord, thanks that I can walk. Thanks that these shoes aren't as uncomfortable as some of the other shoes I have. Thanks that this grass is growing here. Thanks for the stone and the colors in it. Start giving thanks and you'll see how your mood changes and you start to see the positive. And finally... Ask yourself what satisfies you. Ask yourself what truly satisfies you. 
The writer of Ecclesiastes says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it, and again all was vanity and a chasing after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. What is it that satisfies you? I used to play computer games, and then a friend of mine said, did, did you think after you'd played the computer game for three or four hours, I'm really glad I spent my afternoon like that? <laughs> and I said, no. I felt like it was an awful waste of my time. So instead of doing that, I read books that inform me and help me to understand things, or maybe I go for a walk or enjoy myself like that. Ask yourself what really satisfies you. And you will find it's the simpler things in life. It's generosity and kindness that satisfy you, and not having more and more stuff. So last week we said that by being wise with money and resources, we can set ourselves and others free to live out God's purpose in the world. And this week I want to say that through the discipline of contentment and the practice of thankfulness, we are able to set our minds on Christ, And so find the peace that we truly long for. And then I believe we'll begin to see the kingdom of God here in this place. Amen.